No, really, it's, it's my privilege today to guide us through this next part of our continuing study um, of the instructions God gave Moses for the building of the tabernacle. And today is our seventh part, focusing on the oil of the lampstand and the priestly garments. And if you're new with us today, uh, and for some of you who've been here the whole time, you might have the question, why? Why are we spending so much time, section by section? After all, we don't live in a desert. We don't worship at a tabernacle. And furthermore, some parts of what we studied, like the curtain and the Holy of Holies, are literally been ripped and destroyed and put aside with the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, I think that last part hints at the answer, and it goes beyond just our assurances in Second Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you and that's me, may be thoroughly equipped. You see, we have to be careful not to read into Scripture our own earthly observations or sensibilities, what we want it to say or what we want to ignore, and say we need to read out of it God's purpose and instruction. And so when we're looking back into the Old Testament from this side of the cross, it's hard not to see the symbolism, the foreshadowing of God's plan of salvation. The veil ripped, the law fulfilled. The old covenant and its focus on sin and separation replaced with the new covenant focused on grace. In the same way that nature proclaims God's glory, so does all scripture point to Christ. And so we study it so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because we know these three things about God as born out in the tabernacle, and I know we're doing notes before we've read the scripture. I don't know if that's allowed, but it's what we're going with here, okay? This is what we know. We know that God is a perennial God, everlasting. He's the beginning and the end. Isaiah 64 tells us, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We know that God is a God of purpose, Even in these instructions, he lays the foundation for atonement and reconciliation that will be perfected in Christ. Every detail that Christ accomplishes to restore our relationship with God can be discovered in the particulars of the tabernacle. And we know that God is a God of presence. The tabernacle was literally a place for God to dwell among his people. He wants to be among his people. He wants to seek them out. He wants to dwell with you. I thought a lot about this considering all the details and thoughtfulness that we've studied and to think of generations later, Israel crying out for a king like the other nations. Or us today, when we have everything we need in God And yet our focus is on what others have. I want to be able to have what others have. So with that on our minds, let's look at our passage today. 
And would you honor the reading of his word by standing, please? Exodus 27, verse 20 through 28, 14. You are to command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light in order to keep the lamp burning continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to tend the lamp from evening until morning before the Lord. This is to be a permanent statute for the Israelites throughout their generations. Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priest. Aaron, his son Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. You are to instruct all the skilled craftsmen who I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the garments that they must make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. They should use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. They are to make the ephod out of finely spun linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. It must have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it can be joined together. The artistically woven waistband that is on the ephod must be one piece according to the same workmanship of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely spun linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of Israel's sons, six of the names on the first stone, and the remaining six names on the second stone, in the order of their birth. Engrave the two stones with the names of Israel's sons as a gem cutter engraves a seal. Mount them, surround them with gold filigree settings. Fasten both stones on the shoulder piece of the ephod as a memorial stones for the Israelites. Aaron will carry their names on his two shoulders before the Lord as a reminder. Fashion gold filigree settings and two chains of pure gold. You will make them of braided cord work and attach the cord chains to the settings. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God eternal, we thank you for bringing us to this moment today. For the blessing of your presence and the provision of your word that we may be thoroughly equipped by it. In your name, amen. In Exodus 19, God declares to Israel, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. This is a calling that we, as believers today, have inherited as part of that new covenant. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One way God set apart the priests of the tabernacle was by appointing priestly garments And the symbolism there can inform us of our role as a priesthood today. See, from the very beginning, the garments were extremely important in identifying a priest. Sort of a holy uniform. It validated their position. And if a priest did not have the garments, sacrifices he offered would be considered invalid. The garments themselves were sort of a proof that the wearer was standing in service of God. The colors of the clothes, blue, 
purple, red, all foreshadow a God of heaven who would give up his royal throne and shed his blood for our atonement. But even if the symbolism and the colors, even if that sort of thing just kind of goes over your head, the physical presence of those colors and the dyes that were used would tell you more than enough about the cost of clothing a priest of God. See, gold and fine linen are obvious to us. Those are luxury items. But the colors represented some of the most labor-intensive dyes. One source estimated take about 1,500 shellfish or marine snail to produce one ounce of the dye used to make blue and purple ink dye. The process is fascinating, and you can look at it and research it. I'm told our brother Whitey can tell you all about it and attest to it. But it included things like boiling thousands of snails for days just to extract the smallest amount. The large number of snails required such a complex process And the result was such a beautiful, fade-resistant dye that the dyes themselves and the fabrics that they were on were worth more than gold. In our passage, we were told to make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. Check. And then my favorite part. You are to instruct all the skilled artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. Now, this is just a little bonus observation. But see, it doesn't matter what you do. You could be the best coder that your job has ever seen. Maybe there isn't a fighter pilot on this earth that can fly better than you. Maybe you're just okay at a bunch of stuff. Or maybe you know how to extract the, extract the precious mucus of a snail and turn it into the most beautiful clothing. You could be the top 10% of the 10% in your field, and that's not from you. That's God who gave you that talent and those skills and that perseverance. In Zechariah, the prophet has a visit vision that illustrates this consecration of the priests. He says, Now Joshua, the high priest, was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. See, maybe you're here today and you struggle with that idea. David, you don't know what I've done in my life. I have earned all of those filthy rags. Each stain of shame deserves to be there. And there's got to be a catch because I don't deserve new clothes. There's nothing free and there's no way that I can pay enough to afford that. Maybe you think you can't accept the gift of salvation because you can't pay the price and there's nothing for free. 
And I'm here to tell you that there was a price. And it absolutely had to be paid. And there was nothing free or easy about it. Because when Jesus took your sin on him, when he was cut off from the Father who he had known for eternity, when his earthly body was tortured and pierced and broken to his last breath, that was the cost, and it was paid. In Corinthians, we're reminded as believers, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, the costliness of the garments also remind us of the dignity that we are to conduct ourselves See, the cost of these materials, they prevented it from being accessible to the layperson. It was a symbol of position, of status, of responsibility. Kings could afford these clothes, and often those whom they showed favor to. At the end of the book of Esther, the king passes an edict giving the Jews the right to protect themselves. And it's really remarkable. Mordecai, who two chapters earlier was sitting wearing sackcloth, is sent out from the palace like this. It says, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province and every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews, because fear of the Jews had overcome them. They saw that Mordecai and the Jews were under the protection of the king. In Daniel, we see the prophet of God interpreting the writing on the wall when no others could do it. And we're told then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. You see, the kings of old dressed their representatives in fine clothes to remind everyone who they represented. In the Gospel of Mark, we see another side of this. We read about the soldiers who arrested Christ. And we're told they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage, and they had mocked him. They stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on. In John's gospel, it's described this way. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns put it on his head, clothed him in a purple robe, and they kept coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. You see, the Roman soldiers thought they were mocking our Lord, clothing him in purple as if he was unworthy of it. The King of kings and Lord of lords. But the very thing they mocked him for was proclaimed to all creation and all eternity. When three days later, he rose again. 
conquering death, fulfilling the law of the prophets, a living Savior. Where death is your victory and where death is your sting. What greater thing can we have to be thankful for this Thanksgiving season? Isaiah puts it this way, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord and exalt my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. You see, Christ took his cloak, his royalty, discarded in mockery by the soldiers, and he put it on my unworthy shoulders, covering my sin and shame if I would only submit to his authority. And I have to pause here, though, and ask myself, as much as anybody, do I as a Christian, do we as Christians, clothed with garments of salvation and wrapped in robes of righteousness, do we honor that with our lives and our actions? Do we bring dignity to the role and to the person whose colors we are wrapped in? Or do we mock the robe in our own ways? Do you follow his word in your attitude and your practices? When you post that comment online? When we prioritize our own schedules over serving his kingdom? When faced with the unlovable Do we remember all the stains of ours that he's covered? Or do we put back on the filthy rags of our self-righteousness? How easily we sometimes cast aside our priestly garments. And it looks like this, Isaiah 64. All of us have become like something unclean. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. In this way, the garments also remind us of the function of the high priest, why we need him. See, the high priest's main duty was to make sacrifices for the people's sin once a year on the Day of Atonement. Because God is holy and good and pure, he can't dwell with impurity. So the place where God's presence was, where he dwelt on the mercy seat, was separated. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would ceremonially cleanse himself before entering the Holy of Holies. The ephod was part of that integral ceremonial garb that he would wear, showing that he was ready to serve God. Without the ephod or the breastplate or the tunic or the sash, the priest was unfit to serve. He was not prepared or clean or holy enough to do the work of the Lord. And while performing the duty, he would wear the ephod with the two onyx stones, mountain and gold. And these stones were engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he carried those stones into the Holy of Holies as a reminder before God of his people and his covenant. So that when he'd take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, 
to make atonement for the sins of the people, God would remember his covenant people. But the high priest was just a man, and the sacrifices were never sufficient. And they had to be made year after year. But not so for us. Hebrews tells us, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The symbolism in the tabernacle and the high priest brings us to this moment as Isaiah points it. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow, and though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. You see, Jesus is our high priest and redeemer. He's all we need. And he invites us into a royal priesthood. It's our names on his shoulders, fastening us to him and his glory. Like he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's invited us, Jews, Gentiles alike, to be part of the royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, you had to be born into that role. Not every Levite was a priest, but there was no priest who wasn't a Levite. In the new royal priesthood, we also have to be born into it. But it's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual one, to be born again. In the Old Testament, the priests who weren't in the tabernacle, which were spread out throughout Israel, set up in towns all over They were access points, beacons in those communities, connecting the Israelites to their gods. We are a royal priesthood, but also one that is purposeful. Our purpose to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into light. As Christ said himself, I am the light of the world. And anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in the tabernacle, in front of the altar, there was the golden lampstand. And the lampstand was the only means of light. Without the lampstands, the priests couldn't see what they were doing. This picture of a lampstand is found over and over through Scripture as both an example of who Christ is and who we are called to be. In Acts 13, we're told, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The instructions we saw earlier of the lampstand in Exodus 25 describe seven bowls. This wasn't a candelabra where you put candles in. The fire kept burning because it had to be regularly filled with oil from an outside source, not a candle burning its own wax to stay lit. The oil that we put in our lampstand affects our function 
and we have to be continually filled. Oil throughout Scripture is used to speak of the presence of the Holy Spirit, an anointing, appointing, healing, and in this case, fueling our light to the world. In Acts, we're told that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, when we think about being light to a dark world, we often use the expression, we are reflecting Christ to the world. I think that's an incomplete picture. You see, the caliber of a reflection is based on the quality of the material, the surface that's reflecting the light. Now, you can polish a surface, you can remove dirt and grime and dullness until it shines, but fundamentally, we cannot be polished enough. We risk getting so caught up in our outward shine that we neglect the source of the light. If you're like me, do you ever get caught up in the outward things? Trying to polish yourself, trying to check all the boxes, or in the worst case, be so concerned that you get frustrated by the very circumstances we could shine in because all you can see is the fingerprints and the dirt you're going to need to polish afterwards. Like the priests and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, more concerned about their condition than the heart they should have. We need to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit shine through us. Is your lamp burning brightly? Do you replenish the oil every day? Do you meditate on the word, spend time in prayer? We're called to have a never-ending source of oil flowing constantly. See, there's no banking of spiritual nourishment, but we act like that all the time. Try to fill up on Sunday and then maybe get through the week and then fill back up. But we're called to daily be in the word and live in the spirit because you have got to fill your lamp with something and the fuel we use the oil we use affects our efficiency and so we're called to use pure oil verse 20 calls for the israelites to bring oil from crushed olives now some versions will say beaten olives that stood out to me and i was what so i looked into it and and there's again a wealth of interesting information but it's different than pressed olives. The whole process is, is fascinating. The short answer is this. There's initial bruising or cutting or pressing, crushing of the olive, which results in the purest oil. And then the second pressing is when they crush it to get every last bit out. But then some of the impurities, some of the pieces of skin and things like that get into it. It's kind of similar to maybe juicing an orange, right? That first squeeze is all juice, but if you put it on the presser and you grind it, you're going to get more out of it, but there's going to be some pulp and some other stuff that gets in there. Now, of all the natural oils to burn, olive oil burns the cleanest. And Israel was commanded to bring the first fruits, if you will, the first, the best oil for the lampstand. 
And we have enough engineers and just simple life experience in this room to know the importance of having the right part for the job, the right fuel or the oil. You can burn a lamp, you can run a machine on something else, but it'll burn less bright, dirtier, impurities will clog up the machine. It is impossible to see rightly without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth guides our understanding of the Word. And God's Word is more than mere information. It calls us to respond, but not in our own power. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. These words in Zacharias remind us that the source of light is not us. We aren't replenished by our own strength or our own might. All of our ologies and isms and personal preferences are all secondary to biblical truth and God's heart for the gospel. We have everything we need in the Spirit directly from the source. Lastly, we see that the light of the temple was supposed to burn continually and the priests attend to it. Lamps require attention, filling with oil, trimming the wicks, and the oil in our lampstands affects our preparedness. We must diligently tend to our lamps. The light is not something that we can turn on and off at our convenience. Christ's light in us is meant to shine continuously and bright but maybe too many times we turn it off to be part of things or conversations or opportunities we shouldn't be part of. Christ shares, shares a parable about oil. At the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the, bride, the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish one took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And in the middle of the night, there was a shout, here is the groom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps and the foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. And the wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open for us. And he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. We must continually maintain our lamps and the oil we put in them. You can't live off past movings of the Spirit. You can't bank your spirituality from five years ago, from last summer when you really connected at that camp. Neither can we borrow other spiritual experiences. You can't live vicariously as a Christian through someone else. It has to be your faith and your life and your personal commitment to Christ. We have to have the oil replenished every day. Now, most obviously, this parable is a warning 
to those putting off knowing Jesus. If that's you and you haven't put your faith in Christ alone, then I invite you when we sing to come down and talk with myself or one of our elders about what that means to accept him, to cast off your old self, be clothed in his righteousness and live a life fueled by the Spirit. But to the many believers who are here, I want you to consider this as we close. The bridesmaids knew that the groom was coming. You might answer the question, do you know Jesus confidently? Yes, I know Jesus. But I think this parable is asking you a different question. A scarier question. You might know Jesus, but does he recognize you? By your life and your fruits, by what you are putting in your lamp and fueling your life with, are you living a life worthy of the calling? The key to Christian readiness is to keep that light burning, to be constantly filled by the Holy Spirit. So much of our weakness and defeat and the laziness of our spiritual lives can be explained because we are not going back to the source. We are not living a life worthy of the garments the costly garments that we have been robed in.